Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer, the FT's Acting Industry Editor, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into some of the stories we think matter. Greta Thunberg, the Swedish climate activist, made headlines this month by opting to sail to the US rather than travel by plane. Her choice reflected a growing recognition that air travel carries a heavy cost to the environment. Yanida Conboy, our transport correspondent, has been looking at this problem and the aviation industry's response to it. And she's here with me now to discuss this, along with our environment correspondent, Leslie Hook. Yanina, you spoke to Anna Hughes, an environmentalist who epitomises this new and growing hostility towards flying. What did she tell you? Well, Anna Hughes has founded a Flight Free 2020 campaign in the UK off the back of other campaigns that exist in other countries. And she's encouraging people to commit to not flying in 2020. Her aim is to get 100,000 people to sign up to the pledge. So far, she's got 3,000. And she's found that when she speaks to people, they're quite often not aware of the effect flying has on the environment. She is concerned because it's not obvious how the aviation industry can realistically decarbonise in the long term. Anna Hughes is tapping into the trend of flight shame, driven by the likes of Greta, which has started in Scandinavia. And... Anna Hughes herself actually committed to not flying 10 years ago and doesn't fly anywhere. She tries to get everywhere by bicycle or public transport and is encouraging people to perhaps when they think holiday, stop thinking flight and perhaps consider UK destinations if that's where they're based or even try to get to some of the European cities that they're used to flying to by train because once you take into account security queues, immigration queues, etc, getting to the airport, which is usually out of town, the train doesn't necessarily take that much longer. And if you are organised enough and book in advance, it can be a cheaper option. So that's what she's trying to do. Yeah, it's, it's quite a big trend because we do think when we think of holidays, we all think cheap air travel, let's go to Spain. So Leslie, what's the evidence? I mean, how bad is flying compared with other pollutants? Well, it's really interesting because in terms of global carbon dioxide emissions, aviation is only 2%, which doesn't sound that bad. But there's a raft of research over the last few years that show that the emissions from airplanes, not just carbon dioxide, but also nitrogen oxides, also the contrails they create, those are those white ice vapor clouds that you see in the sky when you see that white line behind the plane, that's called a contrail. All of that has an impact on global warming that's much greater than just the CO2 impact. So most of the studies show that the warming impact of planes is about twice the amount that you would expect just from CO2 alone because of those other factors. So closer to sort of 5% of man-made warming can be attributed to aviation. The reason that climate activists are so worried about this is because it's an area that's growing very, very quickly. So while in other sectors like power, we have wind and solar farms, many countries in Europe have already been decarbonizing their power sectors or your car, you know, electric vehicles are growing. With aviation, it's not really clear how it's going to decarbonize, as Yanina mentioned. And also, this is a very fast growing industry People are just traveling more than they used to. So, Yanina, you've spoken to a number of airline chief executives. What's the industry doing then to combat this? Well, there are several things they're doing in the short term. They're often investing in more fuel efficient aircraft. And also there is carbon offsetting. But carbon offsetting is not decarbonizing. So in order so, so carbon offsetting is when you purchase a tree 
Also, one industry insider told me that customers don't always realise that they can carbon offset or they choose not to carbon offset. And it's quite difficult to sometimes encourage passengers to click on that bit of the website when they're booking a ticket. But in the long term, various airlines are looking at alternative fuels and electrification. But realistically, these are long-term solutions which aren't going to happen in the foreseeable future, certainly at scale. Is anybody actually sort of investing real money into alternative fuels? Because, I mean, electrification is quite a few years away. I mean, nobody's predicting we'll be flying from London to New York anytime soon, if at all, by 2050 in an all-electric airliner. So these sort of alternative fuels, are they investing lots of money in these? People are investing. There are various airlines like BA, Lufthansa are working with projects that will create biofuel or synthetic fuel. United Airlines is another company which is heavily involved in developing biofuel and is trying to really scale it up. But looking at it globally, the investments are relatively small and it's not enough. But there are airlines which feel that, particularly in the UK, governments need to start stepping in and incentivising airlines to switch to other fuels because the problem at the moment is that jet fuel is much cheaper. And so in terms of the business model, it's very Mm -hmm. difficult to justify moving to an alternative fuel, which is in some cases three times more expensive. Leslie, are there any environmental concerns about some of these fuels? I think biofuels has become very, very popular for the aviation industry to talk about. There's headlines about used cooking oil from your house can fuel this jet plane. Isn't that cool and snazzy? And it is. But what the research shows is that to actually create and produce biofuels at the scale that would be needed for aviation or for other forms of transport that can't be easily electrified at the moment, you would really need so much land to do that, that it wouldn't be feasible at the large scale. So the IPCC report, that's the report from the UN Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change that came out earlier this month, showed that to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees would require 7 million square kilometers of land for bioenergy. And 7 million square kilometers is like the size of Australia. So this is a lot of Land. When biofuels are done at a small scale, you could grow a crop perhaps on some land that wasn't being optimized or wasn't being used for food crops. But if you think about 20 years' time, global population is going to grow, food needs are going to grow. And if demand for biofuels is growing along with that, that puts a lot of pressure on available arable land. And is there an issue also with the sort of energy density of some of these biofuels? I mean, I guess one of the issues, again, switching from kerosene is that it does have a very high energy density, which gives you that thrust for the aeroplane. I mean, how do they match up? I think looking at alternative fuels as a whole, electrofuels, if that can take off, electrofuels are a product that does match the density of kerosene, which is why if it can be produced at scale in a sustainable way, that could be a real breakthrough. Biofuels at the moment tend to be used, from what I can gather anyway, particularly in the case of United, for example, the biofuels are often a drop-in fuel which is blended with kerosene, so it might be half and half. Leslie, can you just explain what are electrofuels? Electrofuels are also called synthetic fuels. The idea is using power from renewable energy like wind or solar to drive a chemical reaction that yields a synthetic Fuel. So rather than extracting fossil fuels from the ground, you are synthetically creating a product that basically can match 
kerosene very, very closely using the power from renewable energy. Let's just go back to electrification. People do talk about electric flying taxis, which should be in the air by 2025. I just wondered, how do you sort of see that? Talking to various people working on this in airlines, for example, EasyJet is working with Wright Electric to develop an electric aircraft, which would be viable for their business. But even the likes of EasyJet, who are quite bullish on the development of electric aircraft, you know, even they say the earliest electric aircraft aren't going to be in service until probably the 2030s mostly because of certification. It takes years to certify a new aircraft. Pilots will need retraining. Certain areas of airports will need to be reconfigured to deal with the new demands of a completely different model of aircraft. And even if we do see the first electric planes in the 2030s, they're likely to be hybrid. So there might be elements of the journey that still run on fuel. So possibly it might need fuel to get in the air and then the electric will kick in when it's cruising. But that remains to be seen. It sounds like it's all quite a long way off. I just had one final question in terms of policies. I mean, are there any policies that the government should be putting in place now to advance all of this? So at the moment, the UK has a passenger tax and I think it generates about four billion a year. But that goes straight to the Treasury and it is not designated for anything in particular. It's just a tax on tickets. And the chief executive of Heathrow Airport, who I spoke to recently, has called for the government to start allocating at least some of that money towards developing a more sustainable aviation industry. So I guess one of the sort of conclusions is that flying will have to become more expensive if it's going to be greener in the future. It remains to be seen, but the way it's looking, probably. (laughs) Thank you very much, Yanina and Leslie, and thank you for listening. And don't forget, if you missed our previous episodes on how the Koch brothers shaped modern America or Russia's summer of discontent, you can find them all on the usual podcast platforms. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.